Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm glad to have you here as we continue today our coverage of the uh, 2020 Republican National Convention. Just a reminder, if you weren't with us last week, we spent a good deal of time on each of our shows uh, last week uh, covering what was happening at the Democratic Convention. And so this week we're doing the same with the Republicans. Uh, Last week and again this week, we have uh, people from the opposing party who can weigh in when they take issue with some of the things that are being said at the, the conventions by the party holding them, uh, because, you know, on this show, we always try to present as balanced a picture as we possibly can in our uh, shows about politics. With that in mind, let's introduce the panel we've got today. Greg Bluestein is political reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's with us on most Wednesdays, and we're glad to welcome you here today. Greg, I ask this of all the journalists who have been doing the show in the last week and a half now, are you sort of... Are you sort of yearning to be in Charlotte right now? Did you miss not being in Milwaukee last week, those 20-hour uh, days running all over the cities trying to get interviews and watching the activities at the convention? Yes, Did you miss there, that? Yes, it's so much fun, and, and there's so much you miss by not being there, not interacting with the delegates, not interviewing folks in person, watching things from a TV screen or a laptop. It's just not the same. But I did. I did end up going to a, a lake for a couple of days and still covered the RNC um, last uh, just a couple of nights ago, <laughs> last night from uh, from 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 afar. So it, it made up for it a little bit. Yeah, all right. I understand that. I, I I'm interested in that. Uh, I personally am enjoying watching it from the comfort of my living room. I've been on the road enough over my years in uh, politics. <laughs> We're really glad to have with us uh, Congressman Buddy Carter who represents the first district down on the southeast, in the southeast uh, uh, corner of the state. Representative Carter, in his third term in the United States House, before that, mayor of Pooler. I think, Congressman, you're a graduate of Young Harris College and then went to UGA to get your pharmaceutical degree, right? You have been, you're a pharmacist. You're the only pharmacist in the United States Congress, right? That that is correct. I am the only pharmacist currently. However, we've got another one on the way. We have a pharmacist who was elected as the Republican primary in the Republican primary up in Tennessee. So we look forward to her joining us up there. That'll be a uh, welcome help in 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 our fight for health care in, <laughs> in in Congress. We look forward to seeing the formation of the pharmaceutical caucus. And all of the work that you will Doubling do, <laughs> the two of you. <laughs> yeah. yeah hope- but in any case, thank you so much. Go ahead. Thank you. Well, I was about to say, hopefully we'll have more harmony in the in the pharmaceutical caucus now that we got another member. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we're also very happy to welcome Representative Scott Holcomb, a Democratic representative from Atlanta. Scott, you haven't been on the show in a while, and we're very happy to have you back. How are you handling the pandemic? How, how have you been doing? Um, thanks, Phil. Um, 
overall, I've been doing pretty well. My family, like many, is, is hunkered down. Um, my kids are both going to school virtually, and I'm largely working from home. And, and the, the biggest thing on um, my public service role is just the Department of Labor. It's so doggone slow, and people have been waiting months and months and months. So that's the number one thing that we've been focused on. It's, it's just a real tragedy how long people have been waiting to get their claims processed. Um, and I hear from people all the time who send me emails talking about their difficulties getting their benefits. Um, one of the reasons I ask you how you're doing is because I know your job keeps you on the road an awful lot of the time. Are, are you having to do some travel? And what's it like out there when you get on airplanes these days? No, I, I have not traveled. You're right. When I'm not in the legislature, I practice law as a litigator and have a national practice. Mm -hmm. And I'm usually, when we're not in session, on planes at least once, sometimes more than that, a week. And I have not flown um, since the coronavirus broke out. And candidly, I have no plans to. I, I don't see myself getting on a plane mm -hmm. by the end of this year and probably not until maybe quarter two of next year. Is Everything is just being done virtually. Almost all courts are, are still suspended, so there's very little that's happening right now. Well, we're glad you're with us today. Amy Steigerwald, Dr. Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University, back with us. Um, Amy, uh, you know, it occurs to me that, that you're on the show regularly enough that when I introduce you, I give a very brief introduction because people have gotten to know you. But we should point out that, among other things, you're the director of the Georgia Legislative Internship Program. You're the author of four books. The one that I always think about uh, most is the book on how women work harder to stay in office. I think a gendered vulnerability, if I got the title correct, in which you studied how women have to do more in terms of constituent service and other basic business of the job uh, to be able to uh, retain their positions, right? Exactly. Yes, we're, we're quite proud of that book, not shockingly. Um, but yes, it, it looks at that. We were rather surprised, honestly, about how stark the differences were. But women perceive that they have to do more to convince their constituents that they should be honored with reelection. And so they do so by doing more constituent work, doing uh, being more likely to, for example, introduce bills that represent the needs of their district than their male colleagues. Um, and of course, the other okay. stuff I do, which um, is pretty, which goes for right now, is on uh, judicial nominations. Right, right. All right, uh, let's get started with our conversation about the convention. Greg Lustein, the first night of the convention, when it ended uh, yesterday morning, there were a lot of people who said, well, the Republicans, they did what we expected them to do. Every, all the messaging Monday night was to the <clears> base. Uh, they didn't try to expand the party's uh, reach at all. And I would argue, uh, I mentioned on the show yesterday morning when people said that, that maybe one of the first jobs you have to do on the first night of a convention is try to secure your base before you can reach out. Let's see what happens. And Greg, I think to an extent, Republicans did put on a program last night that did try to expand the base and reinterpret who President Trump is in a way that might be appealing to undecided voters in a broader uh, part of the uh, voting population. Yeah? 
Yeah, I think that was the mission of the night, to, to broaden his appeal beyond the base, to kind of soften some of his edges. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a different tone than you certainly heard on Monday night. Um, and there was, there was the use of the, of the authority and power of the White House itself you know, uh, to try to appeal to, to female voters and to voters of color. There was uh, Trump's, President Trump's pardon of, of a man convicted of bank robbery, the swearing in of, of five new American citizens, all, all people of color, um, in, a, in a naturalization ceremony. Um, so it still had a lot of the same messages we heard on Monday of, of, of a stark, you know, dystopian sort of future if Joe Biden gets elected and attacks on the media and uh, to a lesser extent on Joe Biden. Um, but it also hailed President Trump as a champion of, of criminal justice initiatives and of, of the working class uh, voters who, who he said back in 16 were forgotten. Congressman, I'm curious in, um, what you made of the naturalization uh, uh, ceremony that the president participated in. We, we all know, and Republicans have with some pride, said that they are happy with the fact that the president in his first term has done everything he can, not just to cut down on illegal immigration, but to limit legal immigration to the country as well. So it seemed a little odd that last night they would, in fact, uh, hold a, pr a program in which they would uh, uh, swear in new citizens of the United States. It, it seems a little jarring considering the, what the administration has been about for three plus years. Well, no, I really don't think that, that that's necessarily the case. I thought it was a great a, a great program to have and in an appropriate time. I don't know if any of you have ever had an opportunity to participate in the naturalization um, process or, or ceremony. I've had the opportunity on numerous occasions in my district to attend those. They are very, very special. I will tell you it is the most special day of, of those people's lives when they are uh, when they are sworn in as American citizens, and just to be able to be there with them, and then for us to be able as a country to to share in that very special moment with all of these people, I thought it was just a, I thought it was a great moment in our for our country and for for the um, for the convention. So, uh, Scott Hogan, you don't think that uh, Stephen Miller was gritting his teeth as he watched that unfold? The the architect of the restrictions that the administration has put on immigration? Uh, I'm sure he was, Bill, and I'm sure that some of the ardent supporters here in Georgia were as well, and we're a little bit surprised at RNC makeover edition uh, last night. But um, I think there's there's a couple of things that I, I want to comment on. Is, is one, everything that this president does is for political purposes, every single thing, whether it's foreign policy or whether it's what he did last night, every single action that he takes is solely for political purposes and his own aggrandizement of power. That's it. Uh, it was abominable that he used the White House for political purposes. It would be like Congressman Carter having a fundraiser at the Capitol. You are supposed to separate your political and your public service life, and they are deliberately misusing the office for political gain. Secretary Pompeo's speech, another example of that. It, it, it's absolutely outrageous that the Secretary of State, who speaks on behalf of the United States, not a party, would take place in such a role for that action. Congressman, you know, jump you know, back in, and then, Amy, I well, want to get you in. 
I, I just have to say that I could not disagree more with with uh, with Scott. I, nothing could be further from the truth. Listen, we as Republicans have made it clear that we're not opposed to legal immigration. In fact, we very much support it. We think we need these people, and our country has been built with with immigrants. We all understand that. What we're opposed to is illegal immigration, and what we're opposed to is what the Democrats and what Joe Biden and what uh, Kamala Harris are trying to propose is is to open our borders and allow people to come without going through that process. If you ever want to talk to someone who gets upset about illegal immigration, talk to someone who has gone through the legal immigration process. Ask them what they think about the people who have done it illegally and are not over are over here in our country illegally. I think you'll get a strong opinion from them on how they feel about it. All right, we should, I do want to point out that uh, Forbes, the business magazine, uh, not terribly long ago, I can look for a date here, I don't have it with me this second, uh, wrote a piece that was headlined, um, President Trump has uh, reduced legal immigration, cut legal immigrants by half, and he's not done yet. And let me look. That was July 21st, 2020. So uh, Representative Carter, just to, to make the point, legal immigration has been reduced. And again, I'm surprised in a way uh, that, I mean, Republicans have embraced that for the most part. I mean, you, the, the party see, is happy that there is more available work for Americans rather than relying on on, Im, illegal, on immigrants, legal immigrants coming, right? Isn't that correct, Representative? I, you know, there, there's no question about it. We understand. And I think what the president and, and what the administration has tried to do here is to make sure that the immigrants that we're getting over here, the the people who are coming into this country are truly the ones that we need, are truly the ones that are filling the the positions, the jobs that we need filled. And and that's very important. I think it's important for us as a country. There's no question that the president has made USA first one of his priorities, and I agree with that, and I applaud him for that. I think it should be one of his priorities, one of our country's priorities. But we have – I don't – I think it would be erroneous to say that Republicans are opposed to, to people coming to this country. I, I don't think anything could be further from the truth than that. We are very much in favor of people doing it the right way people coming in here through the legal okay. process. Okay. Um, Amy, I want to turn the page on this, if I, I might, um, and bring everybody in on this part of the conversation as well. Uh, last night, one of the most anticipated speeches was that of the president's wife, the first lady, uh, Melania Trump. And uh, I want to play just a little bit of her speech. And I want to do it because yesterday on our show, uh, Professor Alan Abramowitz, who you know well from Emory University, um, made the point late in the show. He said, why haven't we spent time talking about the Republicans not talking about COVID-19 in the first night of their convention? And he was right. So I said, well, we'll do it tomorrow. And uh, <laughs> Melania Trump gave us an opportunity to do that because she addressed the subject head on. Let's listen. I want to acknowledge the fact that since March, our lives have changed drastically. The invisible enemy, COVID-19, swept across our beautiful country and impacted all of us. My deepest sympathy 
goes out to everyone who has lost a loved one. And my prayers are with those who are ill or suffering. Amy Staggerwald, uh, the first speaker, uh, already a night and three quarters in, to uh, express uh, compassion for people, families who have lost someone or are struggling with someone who is uh, desperately ill because of the virus. Yes? It was definitely, I think, one of the more effective parts of her speech and something that was quite necessary. And as you said, what made it sort of all the more striking is that we hadn't heard similar types of acknowledgement of what's going on. And I think that that is something that the... um, the RNC needs to really address more directly as this is all going on, right? This convention is optically different than all other conventions that we've had previously in the same way that the DNC was, because the reality is that there still is a pandemic that we are having to deal with, right? Not only here, but globally. And there's a bit of a disconnect. I mean, so on the one hand, um, it was really important, right, that Melania Trump acknowledged uh, what was going on and expressed really one of the first times um, sympathy, right, for all of those who have been sick and also passed away. We're at over um, almost 180,000 people. But on the other hand, it was sort of interesting that she did so while giving one of the few live speeches with an audience that also, right, was not all that socially distanced, was not masked, right, in ways, again, that are a little bit jarring for those of us who are watching at home, in part because we're not able to go, right, for people that would normally go to the convention, the delegates from all over that would be traveling for this, they're not able to. Um, And so I think that that comes in. But I think that was one of the places that was most effective. I mean, the other thing I will note, what was interesting was that the other speeches given by uh, President Trump's family were more sort of traditional policy speeches as opposed to these sort of more personal appeals and trying to show um, why the president should be reelected and why he's a good person. And I actually think that was a real missed opportunity, right? In many ways, that's needed. Um, It's jarring to hear Tiffany Trump give a policy speech. Um, What she needed to do was explain, right, why, in fact, right, sure, he may say things off the cuff, but he really is working for everybody. And let me tell you about why my dad is a good person. It, it was also different because unlike the president's family members, um, his children um, and, and others, um, she didn't take direct shots at, at Democrats. She said she didn't want to use her speech to, to tear down the president's uh, rivals. Uh, and, and Well, and aside from faulting Democrats for going on the attack in, in their convention, um, uh, and, and she also used, just like the president did, the trappings of the White House uh, to, to, to carry across her point. I mean, her speech was delivered from the White House Rose Garden. The president's pre-recorded parts were, were done from inside the White House. Um, so, so it made for a, um, as the prof- professor said, you know, a somewhat jarring visual because you saw folks without masks. But also a very um, formal visual that Democrats g- couldn't use, obviously, because they don't have the White House. With respect to, this is Scott, um, with respect to my takeaways, is if if it's needed for the president's family to say that he's actually a nice guy and not to listen to him, and he really doesn't mean what he says, then uh, that, that's certainly an indication of the rehabilitation that he and his party are trying to do. Because let's face it, 
everybody knows what this president is, whether you like him or not. He is an amoral, lazy, incompetent person. Wow. All right. Let me throw something. Um, Sam, is it possible to find Herschel Walker from yesterday pretty quickly, or is that a problem for us? Um, And the reason I want to do that, buddy, I'm going to give you a chance on this, or Congressman, I apologize. Um, I I did think that what, I mean, I get this concern that most of the speaker, if there is a difference between the Democratic and Republican conventions, the Democratic convention was largely about people saying what a great guy Joe Biden was, what a man of character, empathy, compassion. I mean, all of that. And, And even most Republicans don't disagree with that characterization of him. They disagree with him on other matters. I will say that, uh, the, the guy who spoke up for him yesterday was one of George's favorite football players ever, Herschel Walker. Do we have that, Sam? No, we don't. All right. Herschel Walker yesterday, uh, a congressman, said that he was going on a trip to Disney World. <laughs> he was taking the Trump kids to Disney World, and Trump wanted to go along at the last minute. And there was Donald Trump in a suit and tie on the ride. It's a small, small world. Uh, and, and, you know, and then went on to say, anybody who thinks this guy's a racist doesn't know what they're talking about. I, I don't know whether that incident proves that Trump is not a racist, but it was one of the few moments, Representative Carter, where we did see somebody try to make a human connection with President Trump. So Scott's right to the extent that it doesn't happen very often. Well, first of all, could not be prouder of Georgia two nights ago. Not only Herschel Walker, but Vernon Jones. Both of them did outstanding jobs, and we were very happy and, and I think very well represented. But I tell you, I was at the University of Georgia. I was attending the University of Georgia in 1980 when Herschel came. And to see him evolve as he has, Herschel Walker is a great American and we and a great Georgian, and we just could not be more proud of him. He knows Donald Trump. I, and he knows Donald Trump and has known him for 37 years. Listen, I've been around the president. We have got to get past the rhetoric and concentrate on the results. Donald Trump has done more in four years than Joe Biden has done in the 47 years that he's been in Washington, D.C. And don't give me all this about Joe Biden being this this great person as well. I'm not saying he's not a good person. However, keep in mind, I can remember when he ran for president. When was it? 78 or where? The early 70s when he said he finished second in his law class? 87 when he... You know, 87. that's a blatant lie. I mean, we've, there have been time after time where he has been it's been pointed out that he told blatant lies. Now, we again, we've right. got to so, get past the rhetoric and get to the results. Donald Trump has produced so, results. All right. So, Greg, uh, two, two things about this. Number one, it is ironic to hear Republicans. So Buddy Carter's down there on the coast, so he doesn't spend a lot of time in metro Atlanta politics. We get that. Uh, but uh, it is ironic to hear Republicans singing the praises of Vernon Jones, who they despised thoroughly when he was CEO of DeKalb County, when he was in the state legislature. For that matter, many Democrats uh, despised Vernon Jones. He has always been seen as something of an outlier. Uh, but, but, well, why don't we go to let, let you comment on that first, Scott? My, but, but let me make the biggest point here, which is Republicans now embrace a guy they used to despise when he was running DeKalb County. 
it, it, it's comedy. And the reason is, is because he's found out what the winning, winning ticket is in the Republican Party. It's just to praise at any measure Donald Trump. That's all you have to do. Anybody on this planet, if you go and praise him, then you'll be in good graces, no matter what you do personally and everything else. And I do have to say um, to, to Congressman Carter, it is a bit rich that you're criticizing Vice President Biden for a single lie that was told back in the 80s. I don't excuse that, but you're defending a president who, while president, has told more than 20,000 lies while he's in office. Congressman? I don't know where you get this 20,000 lies while he's been in in office, but again, I would submit, I would, I would, yeah, well, that's, you can take that to the bank, sure. Right, but, but the we point is the re- the point is the results. Look what this president has delivered here. We've had the strongest economy that this country has ever seen. Thank goodness we had that strong economy whenever this pandemic hit. I cannot imagine if we had had a weak economy when this pandemic hit. Now, what we need is a V-shaped rebound in our economy. Donald Trump can deliver that. He's proven he can get our economy going again. And and what about the security of our country? We've got the Democrats and Joe Biden who want to defund the police, whereas we've got Donald Trump who is defending the police. That is extremely important in our country as well. Okay, I want we've got to get to a break, but I promised our listeners that throughout these conventions where I knew partisans were going to want to make the strongest points they could about their side, both Democrats last week and Republicans this week, that we would fact check whenever we uh, were certain about what we we had to say. Um, Buddy Carter is certainly right that Republicans are going to run on the fact that President Trump says he's created the greatest economy in American history. Um, I, I want to give you just a couple of pieces of information about that. The Bureau of Economic Analysis um, pointed out that in, in President Obama's second term, GDP growth was 2.4%. In Donald Trump's first term through 2019, not including the pandemic, it was 2.5%, one-tenth of a percent better. Um, when it comes to new jobs per month, in the second term of President Obama, he created 215,000 new jobs per month. In the first term of President Trump through 2019, again, not including the pandemic, 182,000 jobs. So, uh, Buddy Carter, I understand the president has been, uh, he's had a great stock market. There's no one arguing with the stock market. But all of the economic recovery work that he talks about, you know, began much before he became president. For the most part, he's continued it. And for that, he deserves credit. Is that a fair way of really framing this, Congressman? You know, I I just can't go along with that. To compare Barack Obama's economy with Donald Trump's economy, that's like night and day. I mean, the confidence that people have that look at the unemployment rate. You know, I have it it appalls me that any African-American would vote Democrat. And I say that because why would an African-American in this country not vote for Donald Trump, not vote for Donald Trump? who? 
Donald let, Trump, let me, who, let me who, weigh in who, on the unemployment. Who passed the First Step Act, who, who has the lowest unemployment rate ever for African Americans, who has, who, who has sent money and, and funded historically black colleges and universities. Right. His record with African Americans is stellar. All right. In the second term of President Obama, unemployment fell from 8% to 4.7%. 4.7%. In the first term of President Trump, taking him through December uh, 2019, unemployment fell from 47 to 3.5. Greg Bluestein, or no, Amy Steigerwald, you could argue that in fact, the, un- the drop in unemployment began in a much more dramatic fashion under the second term of President Obama. And then again, yes, President Trump kept it going uh, and, and probably had a much smaller drop in the unemployment because it was already down so low. But they both had good records on unemployment, unemployment Amy. The economic data is fairly clear that when um, President Obama took office, it was coming out of the uh, recession in 2008 into 2009. Um, And at that time, right, we saw that uh, unemployment had spiked. There were other uh, GDP uh, had fallen. And uh, we certainly saw, right, a decline in in both of those or 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 a decline in the unemployment rate and an increase in the GDP. Um, and all of the trend lines are pretty clear that uh, President Trump up through, right, obviously before we had sort of all the shutdown and everything, um, had continued that. So it was certainly a, a continued trend of that um, sort of economic upswing from the recession that was in 2008. I think um, perhaps what is, you know, the issue is that we see right now that on the one hand, right, we did have those very positive economic numbers, but there's also the question of right now we don't. And I think maybe what sort of both parties need to really address is what do we do now, right? When unemployment is 10%, it's jarring to argue it's a good economy. So the real question is what do we do in response to an unemployment rate that now has really spot backed up? I think that's a really excellent point. Before we we got to get to a break, Greg, but I think Amy makes a great point. Perhaps a fair way of framing this would be to say that President Obama did a good job on unemployment, uh, that gross domestic product, uh, he, had, he had good record on that. And we have to say President Trump has continued uh, positive uh, in a positive direction on both of those measures. But Amy Steigerwald points out, Greg, that what people are going to look at is where are we headed next. Now, in that sense, Trump has an advantage because no matter how low his overall approval ratings are, he is still considered much stronger in terms of dealing with the economy, Greg. So a couple quick comments and then we got to get a break. Yeah, I mean, polls have showed that that um, that his among his strongest issues are his handling of the economy. Um, and that's why Americans who are tuning into the Republican National Convention um, we're, I think we're surprised to see on Monday, at least, uh, not as much mention about the pandemic and, and the response. Um, but certainly last night we started hearing that. I think that Wednesday and Thursday we'll continue to hear more about the actual response to the pandemic because it's far from over. Unlike some speakers suggested, we're right in you know, maybe the middle, uh, maybe just the beginning. Um, but uh, they're working on it. I do think that there was one speaker at the convention last night who really got to a vulnerability of Joe Biden, and we're going to talk about that after we pause for these messages. 
Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're joined today by First District Congressman Buddy Carter, by Professor Amy Steigerwald of Georgia State University, by Democratic State Representative Scott Hokum of Atlanta, and by our friend Greg Bluestein, political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, uh, Greg, we all know that uh, uh, Joe Biden is the kind of guy who can make offhand remarks that sort of make your head spin around. Uh, he says things sometimes without thinking. Uh, he has, Some of the things he has said have not been particularly smart in terms of uh, the way he wants to be able to uh, work with the African-American community. And last night, Republicans put on the stage Daniel Cameron. He is the Republican attorney general of the state of Kentucky. He is African-American, and he made a pretty powerful speech, including these comments. I think often about my ancestors who struggled for freedom. And as I think of those giants and their broad shoulders, I also think about Joe Biden, who says, if you aren't voting for me, you ain't black, who argued that Republicans would put us back in chains, who says there is no diversity of thought in the black community. Mr. Vice President, look at me. I am black. We are not all the same, sir. I am not in chains. My mind is my own. And you can't tell me how to vote because of the color of my skin. Greg, um, I think it's pretty well established that in Georgia, uh, the African-American vote, particularly the American, African-American female vote, is going to be stable behind Joe Biden. But African-American men might, you know, last time around, there were more African-American men than women in Georgia who voted for Donald Trump. Is this a persuasive argument for them, or do you think that Biden is, is in fact, uh, going to have the African-American vote, in this state particularly, really locked up? I mean, I, th- I thought it was the most powerful of the speeches last night. Uh, he, he also, by the way, referenced Breonna Taylor, um, the 26-year-old Kentucky mm-hmm. EMT, whose death at the hands of police back in March um, has been under investigation and, and, and helped trigger a lot of the, the protests for social justice. Um, I think I think the speech was as much, though, in part of trying to persuade black men to vote and, and African-American voters to vote for Trump, but also to give permission um, for, for white moderates uh, who are worried about Trump's record on race um, to either return to the Republican fold or or, or, to, or to switch to Trump's camp. And that's what a lot of these speeches are. I, I don't think that that the, you know, the Trump campaign really thinks that Vernon Jones is going to convince black Black female voters in Georgia who have who have always been Democrats to switch sides. It's more of about suburban Republicans who are very uneasy with Trump's record um, to see. Oh, okay. There's there's a string of African American um, surrogates who are saying he's a okay with me. Scott, but Scott, uh, Joe Biden did make those comments, and they are insensitive, uh, and and they do make your head spin around. Um. <laughs> yeah, I I, I think. Um, Biden could sometimes be better with with his words, uh, for sure. Uh, and and he, he's not <laughs> alone in that in politics. But I think 
what is worth noting, though, is that Biden's heart is in the right place. And I think that he has um, really just a lifetime of demonstrating um, compassion for others, hard work. Uh, with respect to the issues today, though, which I think are, are most salient in most on voters' minds, um, Congressman Carter falsely stated that Biden wants to defund the police. That's not true. I get that that's in commercials and everything, but it's not true. In fact, he's also he, he's called for increasing the number of police across the country, and that's largely a local decision. But I do think that it's very, very important to recognize that there are systemic racial injustices that have taken place and are taking place and that need to be redressed. And what is encouraging about what has happened with this dialogue is I think that that is now a mainstream idea and it needs to be a mainstream idea and it needs to be fixed. And Joe Biden has a lifetime of work on that issue. Yeah, you're right. Congressman Carter, we know that wait, wait, we we know that Biden we know that Biden doesn't want to defund the police. You know that too. You 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 watch things unfold. Why are Republicans saying that? Because it's true. And and you know, I Scott, I can't help but take offense. You say, Oh, we know Biden is a good person. We know he really didn't mean that. Yet when Donald Trump says something, oh, look what an awful person he is. Look what look what he just said. Nothing can be further from the truth. I've been with Donald Trump. I've sat in the same room with him. I've I've flown on Air Force One with him. He is a good man. He is a businessman who got elected president. And and yeah, I agree. He he's rough around the edges. But again, look at the results. And I also, if I could get this in because it's extremely important, I, I think that we're we're selling African American women short here. African American women love their families. They love their children. They're worried about the safety, the security of their children, just as much as any other mother is worried about their child. African American women are worried about that and concerned about that. Donald Trump. It's the best solution that we have for that. Donald Trump has said security is going to be one of my number one priorities. And I think that's very important for the African-American mother, for the Caucasian mother, for all mothers. Yeah, wait, let me, uh, Congressman, that is a point well made. I do think, Amy, that it would also be fair to point out right now that much of the Trump campaign's a focus on securing communities is about protecting suburban communities, particularly when it comes to keeping out low-income housing. And there's a dog whistle there about if they don't accomplish that, you're going to have violence and lawlessness in the, the streets, which was stated openly on Monday night. So while Representative Carter is correct, African-American families care as much about security as white families do, and everybody else does, but an awful lot of the president's message seems to be about protecting white families against the incursions of minorities. There is somewhat of a disconnect, and I think a that it's almost a discussion that's happening on on two different levels, right? It's one thing to sort of talk about um, safety in the community, right? Using the term law and order, however, is a different one, right? That sort of suggests a lot of police. It does suggest uh, more sort of militarization, the calling in of the National Guard. And the issue is, is that particularly for many people in the African-American community and the brown communities, 
the police are seen, unfortunately, as something to be scared of, right? They're concerned when they walk down the street that they may be questioned whether or not they're supposed to be in that neighborhood. Um, my neighbors who are black and brown have been questioned walking, you know, when they're out walking their dogs about why are they here um, in ways that uh, white neighbors are definitely not in midtown Atlanta. And it's concerning and it shifts how it is that you're viewing it. And so that framing of law and order has one impact as opposed to sort of talking about security, safety. And I think there is also the unfortunate part, right, especially when we talk about sort of low-income housing going into the suburbs. The suburbs aren't all white anymore. They are, in fact, mixed communities. They're very demographically diverse these days. Lots of people who, in fact, are black and brown live in the suburbs. And in part, though, they did get there because there were these openings of the types of housing, the stopping of the redlining uh, that we saw in the past. And so I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of those realities. All right. I'm sorry to cut that short, but I want to get to another break and come back. And I want to spend the last few minutes talking about Kenosha, Wisconsin, because I think it plays into all of what we've been discussing on the show today. You're listening to Political Rewind. Even as the Republican convention is unfolding this week, uh, Kenosha has become the center of national and international attention. Another police shooting, Jacob Blake, uh, shot in the back seven times by police officers who were trying to apprehend him. Uh, investigations, including one that is now going to be conducted by the United States Justice Department, trying to figure out how this happened. In the meantime, demonstrators poured into the streets of Kenosha. Uh, there's been violence. Last night, two people were shot to death. A third was shot and is in intensive care in a hospital in Kenosha. We're still trying to understand how that shooting developed, but increasingly it appears uh, that video shows uh, white men armed with long guns uh, running into a crowd and perhaps starting to shoot white uh, uh, militants. And in fact, one of the law enforcement chiefs in Kenosha said, you want to know why we don't allow vigilante justice? This is an example of that. All right. All that said, I'm going to play an excerpt of Julia Jackson. She is Jacob Blake's mother. This is a little longer than most of our clips, but I really think it's crucial. We listen to what Julia Jackson had to say at a news conference yesterday. Do Jacob justice on this level and examine your hearts. We need healing. As I pray for my sons, healing physically, emotionally, and spiritually, I also have been praying even before this, for the healing of our country. Clearly you can see by now that I have beautiful brown skin, but take a look at your hand and whatever shade it is, it is beautiful as well. How dare we hate what we are. We are human. God did not make one type of tree or flower or fish or horse or grass or rock. How dare you ask him to make one 
type of human that looks just like you. I'm not talking to just Caucasian people. I am talking to everyone. White, black, Japanese, Chinese, red, brown. No one is superior to the other. The only supreme being is God himself. Please, let's begin to pray for healing for our nation. Buddy Carter, this becomes a very complex matter, especially for Republicans, unfortunately, to try to get hold of, because your party under Trump is promoting a law and order message, support the police, stop violence in the streets. But on the other side of this is a young African-American man who we are now told is probably paralyzed for life. And the cries for racial justice are not... Um, part of the violent socialistic agenda that some Republicans are trying to make it out to be. How do you deal with that? Bill, with all due respect, I think you're painting with a pretty broad brush here. Look, there are bad actors in every profession. There are bad pharmacists. There are bad radio hosts. And, and they are as offensive to us as they are to anyone. They're as offensive to us in our profession as they are to anyone. There are bad policemen out there. There are bad cops. We need to weed them out. We need to change the system. There's no question about that. What happened in Wisconsin is despicable. What happened in Minneapolis is despicable. What happened in the first district of Georgia, in my district with Ahmad Aubrey, should mm. never have happened. That yes. young man died way too young. However, look at the way, look at the difference in the response. In the response in Minneapolis, in the response in Wisconsin, and the response that we've had in the first district. We have had protests as we should. They've been peaceful protests. And now we've got production. I am so proud of the leaders down in Glenn County, African-American pastors and, and, and elected officials who have come together and said, let's change the system. Let's get results here. Let's don't have looting. Let's don't have destruction. Let's don't have all these. The, the, the rioting. Instead, let's do this the right way. And we have done it the right way. And we are changing things. And one other point very quickly, I, and that is that the, the mother of Jacob Blake is correct. Our country needs to get back to God. We get back to God and everything will be fine. I promise you that. I'm glad you reminded us of Ahmad Arbery and the tragedy that the community has gone through down there. Scott Holcomb, why don't you weigh in on this very quickly? I, I think those remarks are very powerful and very profound. And I think what she said was very clearly that we need to promote in an immediate and lasting way racial justice. Um, our nation, unfortunately, does have a history of systemic racial injustice, racial violence, and it has to come to an end. And if 2020 has been a horrible year, but if we can change that, uh, we will be a better country for it. Amy? Her remarks were gut-wrenching. And I think part of what we are struggling with is this question of what does it mean to acknowledge systemic issues? Um, as Congressman Carter said, 
right? There, we do need to change the system in the sense of we don't do a great job of weeding out. And some of that, the problem is, is that when we want to, when we simply frame things as bad apples, as opposed to acknowledging how the system itself may allow that to continue, or when we defensively say, no, we want to um, protect our own, we don't want to acknowledge where someone who is in my group has done something wrong, it then prevents us from recognizing how there are issues and how we might move forward on it. And I think that's part of what that's getting at. I don't think there's anyone that thinks that we should be having violent protests. Um, I think what people want, though, is to actually acknowledge the very real um, lives that unfortunately our black and brown brothers and sisters face where they're worried. Um, I have, again, you know, I've got lots of neighbors who they're doctors, they're lawyers, et cetera, and they still worry when they're driving home at night about how they're going to be treated. And that's a problem, right? It should not be that anyone who lives here has to be concerned about that. And that's what we have to really confront and um, address is how do we move to that? I don't think anybody wants anyone to feel that way, but it does require us to think it through and to acknowledge it. You know, Greg, without regard to political party here, um, her comments were something you'd like to think that we all can <laughs> rally around. Uh, the problem is that we are so Republican and Democrat. We saw it last week. We're going to see it this week. The stark differences in uh, how we approach urban violence and um, and and police violence, police brutality, and peaceful demonstrations um, are, are are clear from both conventions. I think, Greg, uh, you're on mute. I think, Greg, unmute your phone. No, we've lost your uh, audio. We've lost Greg Bluestein's <laughs> audio. I'm sorry about that. Um, anyhow, I, I just wanted to say to, to Scott Holcomb and Buddy Carter, especially the two who have very strong partisan feelings about the issues we're talking about today, um, I, I, I just thought that um, can't we get, I mean, I don't mean to sound like uh, uh, I'm uh, all sweetness and light, but can't we both rally around what she had to say in those comments, Buddy Carter and Scott Hokum? I, I agree. I, I think the, the comments she made were were superb. There's no question about it. And and Scott, if, if we get down on our knees yes. and we pray to God to to save our country and and to be with our country, it it'll all be fine. Scott. Yes, uh, I, I think we need to do this. We need to move forward. All right. All right. I'm sorry to cut that so short, but I'm getting waved off. The show is really over with Buddy Carter, Scott Hokum, Amy Steigerwald, uh, the suddenly gone missing Greg Bluestein. Thank you all so much for being part of our show today. We'll continue our coverage of the Republican National Convention uh, tomorrow. I'll be back with you. In the meantime, take care and please stay healthy. Goodbye, everybody.